This episode is sponsored by Fire and Fuel Coaching, where I help you discover who you are and where you want to go, both on and off the job. For more information, please reach out to me at my Instagram handle at juryfireandfuel. This podcast is part of the Everyday Heroes Podcast Network, the network for first responders and those who support them. Welcome. The trials of first responders and their families aren't easy. Enduring the Badge Podcast is building a community to help them out. Introducing your host, backed by 30 years of experience as a first responder, Jerry Dean Lund. Hey everyone, before we jump into this next episode, I want to thank my sponsor, Patriot Supreme. They make the highest quality CBD products that I know of. A veteran-owned company with products made right here in the United States. I've used them in my personal life because they work. I've tried other products. They have not worked, and these do. I like the CBD oil, the CBD gummies. They have melatonin gummies with CBD in them. They have a deep freeze roll-on that works for those joints that are a little bit sore or muscle pain. I love them all. You should check them out at PatriotSupreme.com, and don't forget to use the code Enduring the Badge if you're a first responder. That'll get you 50% off. And please go check them out on their Instagram and Facebook page at Patriot Supreme. Let's jump right into this next episode with Destiny Morris. How are you doing, Destiny? Hi, good. I'm good. How are you? I'm doing good. I'm excited to have you on and excited to talk about some stuff people probably don't want to talk about. <laughs> right? <It's the> best. <laughs> maybe, <laughs> maybe they do want to talk about it. Maybe we're just breaking the ice for them. Yeah, maybe. It's okay. That's my job. That's why I'm here. That's <laughs> right. <laughs> You're a professional in that, that, at that. Working on that, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Tell the audience a little bit about yourself. Sure. So I am an AMFT, so an associate marriage and family therapist. Um, I live in Ventura, California with my boyfriend, who is a wildland firefighter. Um, let's see, I worked in a psych hospital for a bit. And I've worked with active duty military, first responders. Um, I work in substance abuse. I work with teenagers with behavioral, um, cognitive and learning issues. Let's see what else. And then I'm a first responder therapist. That's my big thing. So my um, Instagram or kind of what my social media platform is, is to support um, first responders and their families. Yeah, because you know firsthand, right? That that's makes you... Uh, kind of rare in that area that you know firsthand. Not too many first responders have that opportunity to have somebody like you in their family. Yeah, yeah, I find it comforting. I even for myself looking at clinicians, that's something that I would want is someone that truly understood the lifestyle because it is so unique and you don't get it unless you're in it. Right, right. And you were just saying uh, your boyfriend came home at two this morning from a fire. Yep, 2 a.m. <laughs> and then we were up for two more hours because I haven't seen him in quite a while. So it was a yeah, a long, a long morning, not a lot of sleep, but totally worth it. Yeah. Well, can you let's talk about that reunion a little bit? How like where's he been? How long has he been gone? And yeah, so this one wasn't as long as the other ones. He was only gone 10 days. Usually he's gone the full 14, um, home for two days, a little R and R, and then back again for another two weeks, but at the station. So, um, yeah, it was so nice to see him just because this last, I mean, everyone that's involved in this lifestyle knows these 
past months have been just the middle of fire season and we're getting into more dry, windy here in California. So it was nice to have reunited and have some space together and catch up. Yeah. That's, that's crazy, right? you has gone on this fire for 10 days, comes back for R and R for two days, and then he's back working at the station. That's, that's gotta be a lot to handle. Um, it is, <laughs> <laughs> I'm not going to lie and say it's not, but I also pride myself on knowing how to be independent and knowing how to be okay by myself. And that's something that I like to share, especially over my social media platform, um, how to be okay on your own, because I think that a lot of first responder families really struggle when it comes to the time that they're by themselves. Right. And I think this is a great way to lead into some great conversation. Yeah. Being, I I know my wife doesn't like, she doesn't like to be alone and she she definitely doesn't like it to to be alone when I'm gone out of state on a fire and stuff. Um, But how how did you get to the point where you do, we're okay at being alone? (laughs) I'm laughing because (laughs) I really wasn't okay in the beginning. Um, I've told this story before for people that know me a little bit, but I'll tell it again. The first time he got called to a fire was three in the morning and I stayed up all night or that morning to the rest of the day. And I thought he was going to be coming home that same day. And I was just so distraught and so lonely and I didn't know what to do with myself and I couldn't function And I found myself almost waiting for my life to continue for him to come home. So it didn't take very long for me to realize that that's so unhealthy and it wasn't good for me. And I was very anxious. Um, And then also with my background, I get to, you know, I have that, (laughs) that to help me and not a lot of people (laughs) can say that. So I'm doing therapy on myself over here. That's Um, good. (laughs) (laughs) I'm thankful for that. But, um, Yeah. A few things that have helped have definitely been realizing that being lonely is a choice. So being alone is not a choice that a lot of us have as first responder partners or even as first responders. That's a fact, but being lonely is an emotional state and we get to choose if we want to dwell in the emotion of lonely or not. Um, So giving myself the choice was really helpful. And then also not comparing my relationship to other people's, especially you know, on Instagram, you see, oh, your husband's home every night. You guys get to sleep in the same bed <laughs> yeah. together. And I'm like, man, I wish I had that, which builds almost a resentment and it makes your loneliness even stronger. So that's been something that I've learned not to compare. Um, I mean, there's so much in here. I'm thinking a lot about stop me too, because I'm rambling, but no, you're good. You're good. I think it's important. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I'm thinking a lot about um, just the facts of marriage in itself. So one of the leading causes of divorce is when people do not have a sense of individuality or their own identity outside of their marriage. And the reason that is, is because they have nothing new to bring into their marriage. So it becomes this very boring, mundane, same thing over and over again. And one of the highlights of being a first responder partner is that it's not boring and mundane. (laughs) It's exciting and you miss them and they come home and that reunion is the best thing ever. So I have learned to really embrace that part of it. And um, through finding my own hobbies, self-care, really learning what I like to do as an individual and having my own thing outside of my relationship has made me and my relationship so much healthier because then I have stuff to share with him and he has stuff to share with me and we're excited to see each other. 
So that has been a really a, a balancing act for me, but I've learned how to be, you know, independent in that. Right. So you're talking about the choice of, of the feeling of being lonely. I mean, what other choices do you have? Like when you're in that state of like being lonely or missing, you know, missing that person, because maybe for, for you in your case, right. You met your, your uh, boyfriend goes out on wildland fires and works at the station and it's gone for long periods of time, but also other first responders, military have that same type of thing where they're gone for a long time or police officers in some certain ways, right. Working these crazy schedules and they're like, see their wife for like a few minutes. Hi, bye. I'm like going to bed. Oh, hi, bye. I'm going to work type of thing. Like yeah. what, you know, there's just a lot of emotions there. What, what's your advice to dealing with some of those other than, you know, making this choice and bringing in your own hobbies and things like that? Yeah, there is a choice. Um, and the other emotions that are there, man, there's so much. There's anxiety. Well, I'll talk about the bad ones first. There's anxiety and fear. <laughs> You know, because you are worried that your partner, you know, they could get hurt on the job or while in firefighters, you know, it's a lot more dangerous or even police, military, any of that. There's that worry and fear, anxiety. Um, And then the loneliness, of course. And then on the other side of it, like I said, there's that independence. Um, So for me as a woman, I can only speak as a woman. I like to think of my time alone as my time and it's good. (laughs) I have... um, my own Netflix show. I have a book that I'm wanting to read. I'm nerdy like that. I like books. Um, I have a list of hobbies and things that I love to do. And in the very beginning, those things didn't come naturally for me, just like um, any coping skill. You have to learn to use that coping skill over time in order for it to be something that's um, easily accessible. It's not going to be easily accessible if you're not used to grabbing that coping skill over something else. So if I'm really used to grabbing Um, the coping skill of being lonely and depressed and anxious, then I'm going to grab that every time he leaves out the door. But if I learn to grab the coping skills of going for walks, working out, having my own show and my quiet time, then I'm going to practice how to have those over feeling lonely and down. So something that helps me in the beginning, just get into that is I would actually make a list on paper or in my phone of all the things that I love to do that make me happy. And I like to think of it this way too, is um, if you could comfort yourself, how would you comfort yourself? You know, if you could almost split yourself in half and be a caregiver or a mother or a father figure to your own self that's sad or lonely, what would you do? And then make a list of those things. You know, for me, I have a dog, which is great. So going for a walk, going to the beach. Um, And then when I get in that moment, when I start to feel triggered of being lonely or anxious, I'll look at that list and I'll be like, okay, what are the, what am I going to do today? Which coping skill am I going to grab from here rather than grabbing from the unhealthy? So that helps to get it in motion. And then the more you do this and the more you practice it, the easier it becomes where now it's like clockwork. He leaves and I like to walk the dog. That's helped me. If we leave at the same time, it's so much easier than being left. So a lot of times I'll leave the house and then I'll come back and reintroduce myself to, okay, this is my independent life. Cause you're almost living two lives. You know, you're switching back and forth between life with a partner and then life on your own. Yeah, no, I like that. That's, that's, that's great advice. And I like that you write it down because what if I don't write it down? What do I do? I, I, I'm going to forget and then go to probably those poor coping skills. Yeah. 
Yeah. And that's probably what you find with other people. And, and it, that's a, with a lot of things in our life. I feel like if we just don't write them down, we so easy to pick up something that we didn't intend to, to pick up and do. Exactly. Yeah. So let's talk about a little bit about your, your, your training that you have. Yeah. So you have, you have a lot of education and training and you got a lot of stuff going on. Thank you. I'm excited about it. I just graduated from um, grad school last month. So I'm fresh into the field. Um, but while I was in grad school, I got EMDR certified and then first responder certified. Um, the first responder certified was an online um, program through Academy Hour. I'm not sure if you've heard uh, of it. Before. Uh. Yeah, it's pretty popular as far as um, clinicians go. And so it enables me to work in and alongside of police departments and um, fire departments in my area, um, as well as working for their organization via Zoom for anyone that's in the state of California. So that would be mainly supporting first responders themselves. I haven't been able to delve into that yet. I'm kind of in a waiting period right now. But what I have been able to do is EMDR. Are you familiar with EMDR at all? I am very personally. Yeah. <laughs> I've uh, had four sessions of it. Really? Did you like it? I really did like it. I, I did like um, not talking <laughs> so much. <laughs> That's what I really liked. And uh, it was just a, it was just so much different than I thought it was going to be. I think we all have these big fears of just maybe going in and talking to somebody because we don't want to talk right about our feelings in the first place. This is probably why we were there, you know, in itself. And I think just, it was just the, the process of just letting my thoughts flow. I, I loved. Yeah. Yeah. I love that about EMDR as well. It's supposed to be one of, and I believe it is one of the most gentle ways to approach trauma. So just like normal or talk therapy, what we're very used to it's sit down and tell me your experience. And when you tell someone your experience, especially people that are talking about, you know, combat or, you know, on the job things that are very traumatizing, when you have to retell it, your body relives it. You yeah. experience somatically or physically all of those feelings all over again when you have to say it. So with EMDR, it's like you said, less talking and processing in, internally. So you don't have to go through those experiences again. Yeah. What's your thoughts of your body storing trauma within itself? Yeah. Ooh. <laughs> That's a good one. Um, it does. So there's a really great book. It's called the body keeps a score. Um, and I fully believe in it. And I know it myself that we may or may not recognize it. It just depends how in tune you are with your body, but your body has a memory. So every single experience that you've ever been through since you were born, your body holds onto it and remembers it just like a muscle memory. So for example, someone that went through, you know, trauma as a child, maybe mentally they are not going to remember because our, our brains are smart enough to shut out memories to protect us. Our bodies don't do that. Our bodies hold and store trauma. So people even, um, thinking first responders, you have to be in this hypervigilant state always. And that's what makes you good at your job is you have to be on all the time. If you're not on, that's when accidents happen. You know, that's when bad things happen. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> what are your job? So when you're on all the time, you carry this tension. A lot of people, I touch my shoulders because a lot of people carry it in their shoulders and uh -huh. their neck. Some people carry it in their stomachs. 
Um, some people carry it in their jaws or a tense tenseness in their jaw. And you just get so used to the way your body feels because that's part of your everyday life. But if more people were to stop and just check in with their bodies and go, Oh, I'm so tense right now. Like I need to take a minute and either use breathing techniques or whatever their coping skill is to take some of that tension out of their body. That would help a lot of people that are struggling with mental health issues as first responders or people in general, anybody. Yeah. Um, It would help kind of create a bridge between I'm good right now. And Oh no, I'm going down a hole. This is not okay. It's kind of a halfway when you check in with yourself. Why do you, why do you think that's like a controversial thing? Do you think people don't believe that? Any thoughts? That our body holds tension? Yeah. Yeah. Or keeps the score or holds like holds that trauma. All right, everybody, let's take a little break in the action. I want to thank one of my sponsors, Responder Wipes. They make an incredible wipe that can quickly and easily remove contaminants from your skin. They come in three amazing sizes, and they can be used by firefighters, law enforcement, military, anyone that just wants a quick cleanup. The wipes are aloe and alcohol-free because both of those ingredients are penetrant enhancers. These are the thickest wipes on the market. They don't shred or tear on your five o'clock shadow, maybe like those crappy baby wipes that you've been using. Time to throw those out and get some responder wipes. They leave you feeling clean and invigorated. You can also use them as a cooling towel around your neck on those really scorching days. But most importantly about this product is you need to use them after all types of exposures to help reduce the risk of occupational cancer. Be sure to check out their website at responderwipes.com and follow them on Instagram. Let's get right back into the action. I don't know if I've heard it being controversial just because it's, for me, it's like, Duh, when I'm stressed, I feel it. Yeah. I think if anyone's feeling like that's not accurate, it's maybe because they don't personally have the skill of being in tune with their body. Um, If you were not taught that as a child, or you were taught that, you know, we don't check in with our bodies, it, you know, our body just does its thing, then you might naturally not even recognize when you're stressed. I know a lot of people, especially in sessions, We'll come in like this and I'll say, Hey, <laughs> you know, you're looking really stressed. Do you notice your shoulders are up like that? They have no idea. No, I didn't. I didn't notice that. Well, let's take a deep breath and see what happens. And you see their shoulders drop. And I'm like, did you feel that release? Like, did you know that was happening? So I don't, maybe enlighten me on more controversial things about it, but I'm wondering if they have awareness well maybe controversial might not be the right word i think just there's this a group of people that probably wouldn't believe that that's just like oh you know where's the science to prove that i I think there is some out there to prove that oh yeah absolutely there's tons there's science evidence-based um lots of research on mindfulness meditation um on breath work or using the breath to release tension in our bodies Um, I mean, even little things such as like exercise, there's tons of evidence that shows that exercise releases that stress in our bodies. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. But I could see too, where people would be like, Oh, I don't want to do any of that fluffy breathing stuff. Right. Right. (laughs) That's that. Maybe that's what I mean by controversial. People just don't want to believe that that's actually a thing or could possibly be happening to them. Yeah. Yeah. That's super common. Um, very common with a lot of, like I said, people that didn't grow up in that in the era that we're in right now. Um, I like to call it the TikTok era, but you know, <laughs> younger 
younger generation, um, they're growing up with Instagram all over the place. Mental health, therapy is cool. Um, take care of yourself, do these meditations and, you know, all these different things are very, I guess, popular right now. They're becoming more popular, but if we look back to probably the majority of who I see are older people that are now struggling with the trauma and the tension they've held on to their whole life. Cause they haven't had these outlets to, you know, unpack it before. These are the people that are more like, I'm not doing a breathing exercise. Like, why would I do a meditation? Yeah. Why would I do yoga? And we see that with a lot of first responders. And that is one of the biggest things of why a lot of first responders don't reach out for mental health stuff. Right. I think it's probably, we may feel like it's a weakness, like in maybe the generation I grew up in, you know, it was just those things. Emotions were weak. At least, I don't know that my mom taught me that, but just some of the things that happened in my childhood, I had to be strong for a lot of different things. And so emotion really wasn't, you know, an option for me. It was just, it's something that's came through. I think some other traumas that I've gone through in my life, I've finally had to like become more in tune with my body and, you know, be more mindfulness about the way I conduct my life and, you know, work life balance. Cause it, it just, right. Any balance when it's off, it's, it's off and it ruins other portions of, of your life, I guess, maybe not ruins right word, but you know, throws it off balance. Yeah. It seeps into it for sure. Yeah. So as far as the EMDR therapy, what other, is there, can you explain a little bit more about it? Kind of like maybe some little more science behind it? Yeah, absolutely. I think it's something where a lot of people don't know what it is. Right. It's very popular in California right now. So it's like that hot topic of, Ooh, I want an EMDR therapist, yeah. which if I'm honest, that's one of the first reasons why I was like, I got to get certified. But now that I see what it does, I'm like, Oh my gosh. So let me explain that a little bit. Um, EMDR stands for eye, mo- eye movement, desensitization, and reprocessing. Um, I have a little note right here. So if I'm looking down, that's why. <laughs> you're good. It, you're good. It was created by Francine Shapiro in 1988. And basically, it's based on the idea that negative thoughts and feelings and behaviors are the result of unprocessed memories. So the way that um, that I do it, and most people will do it, but there's different ways. There's something called bilateral bilateral stimulation, which I'm sure you've experienced as a client. You said, yeah, right? Yeah. Did you do the um, the buzzers or did you do tapping? I did the buzzers, and I think from what I've heard other people's experience, I actually kind of like the light and the buzzers, preferably. I do as well. It's really calming on the nervous system, actually. And it's so funny. Whenever I hand them to people, they go, the first thing, almost every time, are these going to shock me? Yeah. (laughs) Well, (laughs) not doing shock therapy. You're fine. So bilateral stimulation, there's a few ways to activate it. So there's buzzers that you hold in your left and your right hand, and they buzz back and forth at either a slow or a fast rate. And you can control the intensity. You tell the therapist up or down. Um, And what that does as it's engaging the left and the right side of the brain, the side that processes facts, and then the side that processes emotion, and it creates a bridge between the two. Also, when we're remembering, if you think about it, if you're remembering something and you're telling someone a story, your eyes often look up in your head and you'll notice that they shift back and forth. 
That's something naturally that our brain and our eyes connect to do when we're remembering something. So in that process of moving back and forth like this, which is also created with the buzzers because you're moving the left and right side, which moves your eyes as well as your brain. It helps you to process your trauma and your memories and access the part of your brain that is not accessible usually. So when we're talking about trauma and maybe you're telling me about, you know, a combat story, you might not have memories that come up clearly because that's what our brains do. We protect ourselves by not remembering. But with EMDR, it helps us to get that unconscious part of our memory and access it. And it's very gentle, like you said. So instead of you telling me about it, I would put the buzzers in your hand and I would ask you to either close your eyes or find a point where you're relaxing your gaze. And I would ask you just to think about the image that is really difficult for you. Maybe you have a specific image about a trauma. And then I have a list of cognitions, so negative and positive. So just for an example, there's a bunch on this page in front of me. One is I am to blame. Another one is I am trapped. Um, Another one is I am stupid. I do not belong. And I have my clients look at this list and pick out the one, if not make one for themselves, if it's not on here, that fits with their feeling about that memory or that image. And then I have them hold the buzzers and due to the reprocessing with the buzzers back and forth, the bilateral stimulation, it helps you to access the feelings and the truth behind those, that memory that you have. So to wrap all that up, because I know that's a lot, um, which is why a lot of people don't know what EMDR is. <laughs> so much. It's like here, there's so much more that I could say about it. But basically the end result is, and you should be able to get to a point where you have this very triggering memory. And instead of it triggering you, you should be able to remember it and not have those negative emotions and come to a peace about it. So it really helps us come to a peace with trauma and it helps us come to a peace with triggering emotions. And then it helps us to process it better. So when we store these traumatic experiences, if you think about it, we put them in like little shelves, we kind of tuck them away. What EMDR does is we kind of pull it out of the shelf and we dust that shelf off. And then when we put it back, we put it back as like a a half, not happy, but um, you're okay with it. Kind of a memory, if that makes sense. It's not held all these yucky emotions and um, maybe even like physical reactions that we have to memories. Does that cover? (laughs) No, that's good. That's good. um, I've heard, had to explain a couple of different ways. I like that one. And that's, and that's very true. It's just like those buzzers and stuff. It just, it was really, if I could say relaxing for me in my, in my experience. Yeah. It uses a lot of different kinds of therapy in it as well. Um, so it uses that mindfulness meditation that a lot of people find relaxing. I use it a lot in my practice. So one of the first things we do with EMDR is we, we do like a, a meditation with the buzzers. We feel the buzzers and we get in tune with your body and, you know, notice any tension. Let's, we scan our bodies from our head all the way to our toes. Where are you holding tension? And instead of judging that tension, let's just accept that's where our body is right now. And let's try to use our breath to release that tension. So there are very relaxing components to EMDR. It's not something to be afraid of. I think a lot of people are scared of it. Yeah. 
we're, we're always scared of the unknown, unfortunately. Very true. Yeah. <laughs> have, you ever, have you heard of a therapy called ART? I have, but only recently. So I'm not enough to probably speak on it, but I know it's very similar to EMDR, right? Yeah. That I, um, I went to a peer mentoring, uh, certification class and they talked about EMDR, how it's very popular and that they wouldn't let anybody really go to any other therapist, um, that did EMDR or ART. So th- those were their, where they would funnel all the first responders to those type of people. I heard it was like EMDR, but on steroids, that's, that's how they explained it. I'm kind of curious. I want to go check it out, honestly, and yeah. experience it for myself. Yeah, I'm curious too. I wonder, I don't know enough about it. Like I said, I know that EMDR is an evidence-based, it's backed by science, um, it's by studies. It's a type of exposure therapy. So that's something that's very concrete that we can use in our, you know, practice as a therapist. I'm not really sure about the other one, um, just because I'm not familiar with it, of how that works, especially in different states, you know, because it's different. Right, right. What else can you tell us about self-care that first responders should know or their or their families? Yeah, hmm, there's a lot there. So yeah. my, my first thing is I always tell my clients first or first care, self-care is not the same for everybody. I really like being outside and maybe you don't. And maybe self-care for me is taking a walk and maybe self-care for you is turning on a movie. So the first thing, it's very simple when it comes to self-care is finding what you like, finding what comforts you or what makes you happy. Um, So it's different for everyone. So I can't tell you, oh, go get a facial and have a bubble bath. (laughs) That might not be relaxing for everyone. Self-care can be it doesn't even have to be like this um, experience. It can be taking a shower and doing your laundry or spending time with your kids for first responders. I believe that that time that you, if you commute or you don't commute that time, you come home to your family, that a little bit of quiet that you get by yourself. I believe that is so important for their self-care because if you don't have that, then you build resentment for your family you know, your kids are rushing in, your wife wants to talk about a million things. Yeah. So that quiet right there alone seems to be a very common self-care usage for a lot of first responders. Yeah. I, I only live just a few minutes away from where I work so that there's not much quiet time in between those two things. But a lot of times I find myself just listening either to something I probably wouldn't normally listen to or just like listening to just nothing, just absolute, just quiet. Yeah. Yeah. I know. That... Go ahead. <laughs> Sorry to mean to cut you off. I know there's just kind of a, you know, you're talking about that maybe that decompression time of coming home and stuff. Is there a thing I maybe could do or as a first responder to just maybe set myself uh, up for coming into my household? Maybe just some, maybe some tips. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm thinking from my perspective as a partner. Yeah. There's a, there's a lot. <laughs> That's great. (laughs) And I've had this conversation um, multiple times over and over um, with my partner, just because it is so important. So let me go back and forth because there's the two perspectives here. So the perspective of the first responder is you're coming off your shift. I like to think of it as like a defrosting turkey. (laughs) (laughs) You're frozen. When you come home, you're defrosting. And there's a period of time that you need to defrost as a first responder because 
like I said, you're hypervigilant. That's what makes you good at your job. Um, a lot of times you are closed off to emotions, which also makes you very good at your job because you can't, you know, be on call and just falling apart. But that's what makes a first responder good at what they do is having that kind of protective shell over their themselves and their emotions. So if you don't have enough time to yourself, like you said, if you live very close to your house, that can be a big struggle when you come in the door and your wife wants to talk and snuggle and love and you don't know how to shift between frozen turkey to defrosted yeah. turkey. <laughs> um, so communication is the biggest thing on both sides. That is huge, huge. If your wife or your partner doesn't understand this about first responders, and a lot don't because I had to learn that one the hard way by being disappointed or feeling rejected from him because he didn't want to come home and talk and snuggle. And I've been waiting for weeks to see him. And I've been so excited for him to walk through that door. And all I want to do is, you know, and embrace him. But if I don't understand that he needs that time, then I'm going to take it personally and feel very rejected and have resentment in my relationship. So for a first responder, communicating that with your partner, Hey, you know, this is what happens when I come home and maybe they don't realize it. So recognizing it. And that's part of sharing more about mental health is two first responders is they also should know what's going on with them so that they can educate their family and their partners on how best to love them. So for instance, my boyfriend, when he comes home, sometimes he'll tell me like, Hey, just need some quiet. (laughs) (laughs) But I'm a talker. (laughs) (laughs) And there are times where I've felt offended where I'm like, ah, oh, I've been waiting, you know, for you to come home and I have all these things to tell you. And I'm excited to see you. Like I feel so dismissed, but I realize that it's not, it's not him. You know, it's part of this lifestyle and having that space because once he has that space to kind of either it's listen to music on the way home or maybe sit in his truck for a few extra minutes before he comes in Or tells me beforehand, hey, I had a really hard shift. I really just need to like get in the shower and have some quiet. Or if you have children, like, hey, can you, you know, I don't know, do an activity with the kids until I decompress a little bit to come back. That is important to communicate. And then as the first responder partner, not taking it personally and knowing that we are going to have that time to reconnect. But right now it's so important for me to show my love by doing this. So that's a way to reframe it instead of, Oh, I feel like I can't share with him instead feeling. I love him so much that my way of showing that love is by respecting your needs. And then when we respect our partner's needs, they respect ours. Most of the time, there's that flow back and forth of, you know, asking each other, what are your needs when you get home? And then as a first responder, asking your partner, when I get off my shift, what are your needs? What can I do to help around the house or with the kids? Or what can I do to make you feel loved and secure while I'm home for this amount of time? Yeah. I think my wife just can honestly just look at my face and she can tell if I slept or not. And then she just knows the rest. (laughs) Because if I don't, yeah, if I don't sleep, I like, it's just hard. I have a hard time dealing with, you know, the transition of coming home and, kind of like leaving one chaos at work to, so to speak, and then coming home to another chaos at home and just being tired. And I know I'm, I'm short, I'm snappy. I'm not loving. 
all, all those things, right. That you're, you're, you're wanting to, to fill from, you know, your first responder coming home and you're, and you're not feeling that. So I think those are like very great and spot on tips. Yeah. And it's okay. I think it's important to remember that we're just human, you know, and we come in short and snappy and we have tips and we get frustrated and disappointed um, as partners and as the first responders. And that's, everyone has that. That's not okay. special, just the first responder partners. Every relationship has that. And there's this amount of grace that we carry through in our relationships where I love you so much. You're being a jerk, <laughs> <laughs> but, but I understand it. And I'm going to give you that space that you need right now, whether it's, you know, sleep, which can be really, I feel like it's disappointing when you have a couple of days off and you want to do stuff and hang out and go on a bike ride or go to the beach, but your partner needs to sleep. So then you're yeah. just sitting there like, oh. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know? <laughs> yeah the, I mean, for sure. The wildland lifestyle of, you know, being out on a fire, getting two days of rest and then going back, back to work. I'm like, those two days of just are, are almost just more brutal. I think sometimes it just, coming home probably for, you know, both couples of like, I want to sleep. I want some normalcy in my life, you know, as a first responder, come home and, you know, you, I miss you so much. I want to talk to you. I want to hang out with you, do these things. And it's just like meshing that together for two days has got to be extremely tough. Yeah. Yeah. I've learned to just really embrace each hour that we have (laughs) because it's, you know, some people will say only two days. And I like to reframe it as, are you kidding me? He gets two days home. That's like Christmas. (laughs) Yeah. yeah. (laughs) I love our two days. It's so good. But yeah, there's a lot that, you know, we have to really work together to meet each other's needs in those two days, which comes from a lot of communication. You know, me saying like, hey, I really just want to watch a movie together tonight, you know, or him saying, hey, I really need to get a good amount of sleep so that I'm good to go when I go back out. And then there's that transition too. I think a lot of us forget about is the night before the night before my guy goes back on shift, he always sleeps like crap. Right. And it's because he's like, is that normal? Like, yeah, I think so. <laughs> no, it's just him. That means I sleep like crap too. I'm just like, man, <laughs> right, right. one more time and you're out. <laughs> yeah. But I think we forget that there's also not just a defrosting period, but there's also a period of, you know, they're re-gearing up to close themselves off emotionally. So a lot of times I, you know, as a first responder partner, I want to connect emotionally, but he doesn't have the capacity because he's already starting to prepare himself to go back into, I guess, combat, you know, or line of duty. So it's, I think that coming into this as a a new couple or a, a new marriage or a new relationship Um, you have to learn a lot of things and, um, learn how you understand and process and deal with that in order to have a healthy relationship. And if you don't, then it is just a a nightmare. I, I see it a lot. I get a lot of messages from a lot of fire girlfriends and wives that didn't know what they were kind of stepping into and just feeling like, shoot, where was my instruction manual on how to support and how to go through this because it's not easy. You know, it's not easy. Yeah. I, for me, I have like that gearing up process. I kind of like, I set all my stuff out that I need to take to work and 
you know, just some of it's just niceties that I like to pack and everything. And I have my clothes out, make sure, you know, shave and do all these things. I'm ready to go for work. So there is definitely a gearing up process and it happens, you know, probably sooner than I think, you know, I try to go to bed at like nine o'clock, you know, the night before I go on shift and probably so like gearing up is actually coming even earlier and the anticipation of the the gearing up, you know, am I going to have time to gear up, you know, with all the family things going on and stuff like that. So I, I, I could see that. I'm glad you like, you talked about that because maybe I didn't recognize it as maybe so much as myself that maybe that gearing up process is actually happening even sooner. And and maybe some people out there recognize that they never even knew that was happening. Yeah. Yeah. That's what's important too, is that your partner has some method of relaxing when they get home. So like, for instance, like my boyfriend, first thing he does is gets in the shower because he smells like a chimney (laughs) (laughs) in the shower um and then in comfy clothes and then usually tv that's that's our kind of decompressing we turn on netflix and just veg and then after a little bit then we you know chat more and and he shares about his shift and i share about my life and we come back together very slowly i like to think of it as like a very slow like melting together process Mm -hmm. when it happens too quick that's when we get short and snippy and feelings get hurt because we're rushing into it together. And it's just not, it's not time And the same with him leaving. You know, I, I have to learn that it's not me. I'm not, not wanted. I'm not, not loved. It's the fact that in order for him to be good at what he does, he has to be able to put that, you know, put his stuff out for work, make sure he gets enough sleep, make sure he has, you know, things packed and laundry done and, you know, in bed and ready to go and kind of starting to close yourself off emotionally sometimes. Um, Another component that's important too, that I think we forget is when our spouses are on shift or on duty and we call them on the phone or we FaceTime and we maybe tell them something that's emotional or something we're struggling with, or we're frustrated. We do that, you know, we call, oh my gosh, babe, like this happened at work today. And I feel so frustrated. We don't get the reaction we want. And the reason being is because they're in that mode of emotionally not being able to meet those needs. And that's, that's a fact. And it's a crappy fact when you're the receiving end of it, but that's why it's so important to understand it that you're not going to have those emotional needs being met when they are on duty because they are physically usually unable to turn it on and off like that. There's a process that happens in order to shift between turning it on and off. So just recognizing that if I tell my partner something and I'm looking for emotional validation, I might not have my needs met in that moment. And something as a first responder that you can do is say, Hey, like, I know you're really upset right now. I hear that you're upset. Um, I would love to talk about this more when I get home with you and that you're kind of tabling it. So you're not dismissing the person, but you're just tabling it for now. When you get home, I'd love to talk about this in person. Like I want to be there for you physically right now. You know, I can't. (laughs) Yeah. After our end thought a little bit, I know I'll be there for you. (laughs) Yeah. I got a thought out, man. (laughs) Uh, I want to talk about something that I've heard you use this a couple of times since I've been talking to you and I, and I really like it. Use the word reframing. Hmm. So I think that's really important. I mean, do you want, can you go into that? Like why, why is reframing so important? Cause we get stuck in this mindset of this is how it's supposed to be. 
know, this is what marriage is supposed to look like. This is what my relationship is supposed to be. This is what my responder, my partner is supposed to react to me as. And we, I mean, culture gives that to us, right? right. Books and movies and Instagram and, and, you know, your partner comes swinging through the door. <laughs> like, oh, I missed you so much. What can I do for you? How do yeah. I, you know, with flowers in their hand, um, <laughs> we have to reframe constantly in order to be flexible or to be resilient. Resilience, one of my favorite words. And that's why I chose that for my Instagram handle is I believe that resiliency really comes, which is like a, a swing. If you think about it, someone that's not resilient is very like tight and is easily broken and not easily repaired. Someone that's resilient kind of sways with things. So in order to be resilient, you have to continually reframe. So in my head, maybe I have this idea, this is what a relationship looks like, but I reframe my train of thought or the way that I see my relationship of, wow, actually, this is a really beautiful um, type of relationship that a lot of people don't get to have. Like it's like Christmas every two weeks. (laughs) I don't get sick of my partner. I am always so excited to see him. And I also love to take those two weeks to really think about what my needs are and what our relationship is doing and what things need to change in a relationship outside of first responders. You're around each other so much that you don't really get a lot of that time apart. Right. Um, So I like to, I guess, reframe the, the good side of being a first responder partner. And I see it on social media so much, especially with like wives pages it's a lot of complaining and I do it as well because it's, it's not easy, but there are so many highlights of being in a first responder relationship or having a family with the first responder that I don't think get enough attention. Yeah. I, th- I think you're, you're very right. You're very spot on resilience. Let's go back to that word a little bit. C- can I become more resilient? I mean, I've been, I've been doing this job like 30 plus years and it, can I still be resilient or am I, is, is all my resilience wore out? Am I just rigid now and stuck and unflexible? I mean, that's a choice. So yes and no, there are people that are very rigid. Um, now I'm thinking even like <laughs> diagnostically personality, disorders. <laughs> people with personality disorders are extremely rigid in the thought process. There is no way in any any possibility that you could change their train of thought. They're stuck on that train and that's where they're going. Um, is that a type A personality? I'm just, no, I'm speaking. I, I, I'm like just kidding. Borderline, <laughs> borderline personality <laughs> disorder. I think your personality disorders, but um, they're, I guess, type A as well. But most people have a little window of, of being able to be more resilient when you recognize that you're not happy, whether it be in your personal life or in your marriage, that's when you have a, w- a window that opens for you to be more resilient. So you have, everyone has the ability to change. You could change when you're on, you know, a hundred years old, you, you have the ability to change. You have the ability to take in new insight, but just because you have the ability to do so doesn't mean you're going to, you know? Right. So right. it's up it's up to you. Do you think EMDR helps people keep the resiliency or maybe bring some of that back? Yeah, absolutely. Because you're switching your negative thoughts or a very like rigid. So maybe you have this really rigid thought of, 
I cannot trust anyone. I'm looking at my list right here. Maybe that's, you just have this thought. I cannot trust anyone. I've been so hurt. And I have this experience that hurt me so much. Very rigid. Nope. No one. Well, what EMDR does is it helps us wipe away that I cannot trust anyone and change that into, I can trust, or I am safe. So absolutely. It broadens that window of having more resiliency because you are again, reframing the Mm -hmm. negative and switching it out for something, a different perspective. I like to think of it this way. And I tell my teenagers that I work with, um, it's, I have two analogies. Therapy is like you fixing your hair and in the mirror, it looks great to you, but I'm going this way and I can see the back of your head and I'm like, (laughs) Ooh, you missed a spot. You're like the back of your head's looking funky. (laughs) (laughs) And it's because I have a different perspective or another analogy I use is it's like being in a house you're sitting in a house and you're looking out a window and you have that perspective. Well, as a therapist, I'm looking out a different window and I see a whole nother perspective. So when I can offer a different perspective to you that maybe you didn't even think about, that's when you become more resilient. That's when you become less rigid. And that's why therapy is important. And it's not just talking to a friend or family member because we are trained to look at all angles and then offer those angles to you of what sits right with you, you know, what you want to grab onto and hold onto. Why do we sometimes get stuck in like a perspective, like as, why do I get stuck in like looking at things the same way and not like being open to look at a different way? Is it just by my choice? No, I don't think that you're, you're probably not, not open to it. It's just, that's your view. It's like a horse with the blinders on. You can't see anything else. And you won't see anything else unless someone else offers a different perspective for you. I don't think it's people not wanting to look around and see a different perspective. Man, if we could do that ourselves, you would. But it's literally like that spot in the back of your head that you just can't see. Yeah. Yeah, I think do people sometimes just work, you know, have those blinders on? just because maybe they don't want to like open themselves up to another perspective or something, or maybe show like a little crack that they're fragile or something, and then have someone, you know, hurt them or something something along the lines of that. Yeah. It's really vulnerable. It's scary. I mean, therapy in general can be very scary. And I think that's why a lot of people don't jump to it right away is because it's an extremely vulnerable experience to let someone into your house as a picture or analogy yeah. and see through a window. Yeah. You know, I don't want you in my house looking through another window. That's, I don't know you, you know, right. inviting someone into your space to see a different perspective. It's extremely vulnerable and it's scary. And a lot of people don't want that because they would rather be fixed and rigid in their thought process. And they don't want any other options there. That's just how it is. Um, I tend to think those people are not the happiest you know, especially if they have rigid thoughts and they tend to be more negative. Yeah, I, I, I can see that. Do maybe one barrier for people coming in to get therapy is they think that, you know, if I share these emotions or these thoughts to someone I'm having therapy with, that they're going to judge me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's normal. I mean, it happens in every conversation, right? You might leave this or I might leave this and go, ooh, like I talk more so me. I talk. <laughs> or wow, I shouldn't have said that. Or I was nervous. We do that. We judge ourselves and we think about how other people perceive us. 
one of the um, things that I like to encourage my clients is I will ask them what about our relationship? What do you think about me as a therapist? You know, how do you feel as a client? Um, And things come up, you know, things come up if they're open and if they're willing to work through your relationship, it's really a small picture of what their bigger relationships are. So a lot of times I can pick up a lot on a person with how they, how they are with me. Cause I, I'm able to see that that's probably how they also react and interact with other people around them. So I always encourage, you know, if you're feeling judged, ask me. A lot of people will make assumptions like, oh, you're just judging me right now. Ask me, ask me what I think about you. And I love to tell people what I think about them. (laughs) That's awesome. I like it. I like it. (laughs) I think that's, that's, uh, I don't know if maybe if every therapist was like that, you know, that would just open up maybe some more conversation because Sometimes, like you're saying, judgments, you know, they think judgments are happening, or I said this and she took it the wrong way, or or vice versa. And then there's now this little barrier or rift. Yeah. And it's okay to tell your therapist when you're mad at them. It's gonna come up because you're working through some really, you know, vulnerable things. So if you start to feel, you know, like these things are coming up towards them, it's important to be like, hey, you know, I'm feeling really irritated with you. I didn't even want to come. One of my, the the biggest things, and I think a lot of people do is they ghost their therapists. (laughs) They they don't call, don't show up because they get irritated. They don't like what happened in the session, or maybe the therapist, you know, we are humans before we're therapists. So maybe I didn't understand completely what you were telling me. Maybe I was off. Well, if you just leave that relationship, it's teaching you that it's okay to leave relationships whenever they don't work out for you. Yeah. But if you were to, and you don't have to stay if your therapist is bad, I'm not saying that, but I'm saying if something happened, it's really important to go back to your therapist at least one more time and have that closure and saying, Hey, I didn't like it when you did that. Or even being able to speak up and say, Hey, what you're the, you know, technique that you're using with me, it's really not working for me. I don't feel like I'm improving. Um, I like to think of finding a therapist, like speed dating. Um, you got to find one that works for you. And if you don't connect with your therapist on a very like real personable human to human level, and you don't feel like you would be able to open up to them, then you got to keep looking for another therapist. Don't settle for someone that you just don't connect with because you won't be able to get work done. Yeah. Makes perfect sense is in the first responder world. I know there's a, so much we could talk about. Is there something that we haven't talked about that maybe would be helpful to share? Hmm. <laughs> we talked about a lot. <laughs> I can think of what, um, yeah, I mean, there's so much. And just, what about just, you know, some of your like personal experiences of just, we talked about, you know, the thawing and thawing and, other, is there anything around that kind of maybe setting up a, maybe some conversation, maybe is some rules or something like that, or something to, to follow as, you know, as maybe as some suggestions as a spouse or a, a first responder conversations. I know, like we talked about, you know, being at work, you know, maybe, you know, setting the expectation. Yeah, I hear you, but you know, I just don't have the emotional capacity to deal with that. Is there anything like something around those lines? Oh yeah. I was just thinking another thing popped in my head of um, a lot of times when our partners see very gruesome things at work, um, 
they may not want to come home and talk about their shift for a couple of reasons. Not because they don't want to share that part of you, but they're protecting you. So, and I don't know if you can relate to this, but you are protecting your spouse from experiencing and seeing secondhand the things that you experienced in your shift. And it's okay for you to come home and tell your spouse or your partner, I had a hard day and I don't want to talk about it and leave it at that. And it's okay to leave it at that. And as, as a partner, know that they're doing that out of, um, out of love. And also know that like when you come home and you talk about your shift, you're reliving it again. That's not what you want to do on your days off. Right. Yeah. So there might be some stuff that you want to share with your wife or your partner about specifically what you did in your day. Um, but not always, and that's okay. And that's something that we just can't take personally because it is an act of love. Um, you know, for our spouses. Yeah. This is just making me think about a lot of things I could have done earlier on in, you know, my, my career with, uh, is just like maybe setting up some, I want to call it ground rules of just how to share conversations of, you know, like these, like what we talked about, these expectations, getting these out in the open and early on how things kind of evolve back and forth at home and at work. And I think we probably, both on both sides be a lot more happy and, and the expectations would be met a lot easier. Yeah. Yeah. Cause that's where disappointment comes from. Disappointment comes from when we have high expectations that are unrealistic that are not talked about. And we usually make them up on our own, yeah. you know, relationship takes two people. So I've we got to really do that. <laughs> right. Me neither. <laughs> but you got to put the bar where it actually is. And that happens by very honest communication. And even as a partner, I'm not saying suck it up and, you know, be ready when your husband's ready for you. Like, it's okay for you to say, I've been really struggling this week while you were gone. I've been missing you and I've been feeling lonely. You know, I find that I'm a very strong person, but there are weeks when I struggle and I find a lot of validation for my feelings when I share them. And then my partner can say, you know, well, what do you need when I come home? What will make you feel loved? And that's okay. You don't have to be strong on either sides all of the time. That's ridiculous to think that way. You can be, you can experience loneliness and it's okay to accept where you are right there. The danger is when we live in it, when that's all we train ourselves to know is, you know, loneliness and then resentment. It's just not a happy, healthy environment to grow in. Yeah. And the first responder can live in that same thing. It's just not the spouse. The first responder can live in that same space too. Yes. Yeah. Or both. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 And if, and what happens if you live, in, if both of you are living in that same space, I'm, I'm going to guess this you know, relationship is just going to just crumble apart and get toxic. Yeah. And if you have children in that space, then you're really, you know, the energy in your household is off because it's a lot. We don't have children, so I can't speak on a personal level, but I can speak from knowing other fire spouses or police spouses with children. It's not just a shift between two lives with yourself. You're shifting with your whole family. So your children are also doing this shifting. And it's so important. Children are extremely, you know, everyone can be resilient, but children, if they're taught that this is the way that we do things in a very healthy manner, This is our, you know, when dad's gone, this is what we do. When dad's home, we try to keep it the same, but this is what we do. They will shift with it. 
But if you have that, you know, loneliness, oh, why is mom crying all the time? Or why is dad so crabby when he comes in the door? You know, being able to kind of communicate and fix those things when they start to happen so that it doesn't seep into your children having this, you know, experience growing up in like a safe space where they know, we know what's going to be coming their way. Yeah, I really like that. Okay, Destiny, this is for the final question. It's really a tough one. <laughs> what impact do you want to make in the world? And I'm going to, I'll narrow it down. I'm going to start narrowing this question down in just in maybe in the first responder world. Mm, I like that question. Oh, so much. I'm so, I'm like ready to like, I'm ready to go. Um, yeah, I I'm see hoping, that. That's awesome. I'm opening a private practice, hopefully the end of this year. Um, yeah. And I'm excited to be working and doing right now I'm in a waiting period, which is really hard, but, um, to answer your question in the first responder field, I would love to be able to educate and normalize and provide a very normal, comfortable experience of what therapy is to reframe again, that word, what we see mental health as like, I know a lot of people say like, oh, break the stigma, break the stigma, yeah. which I think we're doing, but I would personally love to be, you know, hands on in this by going to academies, people that are, you know, in their first time in an academy, going in and talking about this kind of things, um, providing therapy groups for firewives. That's definitely something that I want to start doing where I'm providing these skills in this space, because like I said, there's no instruction manual. There is not one I've looked. I remember desperately searching online when I first got in this relationship, like, ah, what do I do? What am I supposed to do? There's no rules here. You have to learn as you go. And that's painful. Sometimes it hurts. I would love to make that process a little bit easier. And I would like to be accessible for people that need it because that's also a really hard thing is finding someone that understands you. I want to be that person that can look into a first responder eyes or first responder partners eyes and say, I understand what you're going through because I also live that life, but I also have these set of tools that I can help you and I can help provide a healthier life or help you deal with some of the stuff you're going through. So really I want to come alongside these families and these first responders and create a healthier idea of what mental health looks like rather than this stigmatized, oh, don't go there because you'll look crazy, you know? <laughs> yeah, 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 no, that's awesome. I, I, I think, you know, you kind of set yourself up for something here, though. You, you might have to write a small little manual. <laughs> <laughs> it would be, it would probably be filled with a lot of comedy. <laughs> well, that's okay, that's okay. <laughs> Com- comedy is also, uh, you know, a healing tool from my understanding. Absolutely. It's one of the top things I use in my sessions with my clients. <laughs> Very good. Destiny, where can people find you? So I have a Instagram handle. It's on underscore being underscore resilient. Um, I also am working on a web page. It should be up in the next month, if not two months. And that'll also be on my Instagram. Um, and I have an email address, D as in my first name, Morris, M-O-R-R-I-S, the number three at Antioch, A-N-T-I-O-C-H dot E-D-U. Feel free to email me. Um, I'd love to have further conversation with anybody. And then as soon as I'm able to book sessions, I can take anyone in the state of California. 
So via Zoom or in person. That's awesome. Well, I'm excited for you to start your own practice. And what's going to be on this website? So it'll have a little bit more information about what I do. I also do animal assisted therapy. My dog is over here. <laughs> Where, can we see a picture? <laughs> I'll show you. Come here, honey. She's on the carpet right next to me. Oh, so this is honey. Oh boy. Yeah. <laughs> she's a miniature golden doodle. So she's hypoallergenic and she is doing schoolwork as well, becoming a, um, a therapy animal. So I use her in sessions right now. Um, but I want to use her with first responders. I use her a lot with, um, my working with addicts right now, but, um, that is something that'll be on my website. So a little bit more about what animal <laughs> assisted yeah. therapy is, what EMDR is. And then on that website, it will also be able to book sessions with me. Very cool. Yeah. I won't, uh, hopefully my wife won't watch the YouTube video portion of this and see her. Cause she'll be like, yeah, we, we, we need that dog. She yeah. loves that type of dog. So <laughs> it's a popular dog right now. They're great. They don't shed. <laughs> yeah. But the interesting thing is the podcast I just recorded before you this morning is a gentleman who's putting together a nonprofit. He has a nonprofit and he's taking the therapy dogs around. So it, it's, that. it's a great service, you know, most, most people love dogs and dogs know people probably better than people know people. Absolutely. Yeah. She feels people's feelings for sure. Yeah. Well, that's awesome. Well, thank you so much for being on today. Yeah. Thank you for having me. It's been so nice. Yeah. It's been great. Thanks again for listening. Don't forget to rate and review the show wherever you access your podcast. If you know someone that would be great on the show, please get a hold of our host jerry dean lund through the instagram handles at jerry fire and fuel or at enduring the badge podcast also by visiting the show's website enduring the badge podcast.com for additional methods of contact and up-to-date information regarding the show remember the views and opinions expressed during the show solely represent those of our host and the current episode's guests.